Advisor Innovation is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm and a top three RIA custodian, LPL is 100% dedicated to advisor success. We look forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For more information and show notes, visit go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. This is the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. As you know by now, this is simply my excuse to talk to folks who are moving the business of financial advice into new and interesting areas. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Daniel Crosby, Dr. Daniel Crosby, behavioral finance expert, author of three, maybe four books, including most recently, The Behavioral Investor, uh, Chief Behavioral Scientist at Orion Advisor Services, the host of an incredibly popular podcast, highly recommended, Standard Deviation with Daniel Crosby. I think his crowning achievement, probably, and Daniel, you can tell me if I'm wrong, came years ago before all of this when uh, you wrote a regular column for our modest publication, wealthmanagement.com, back, I think, in the years 2013, 2014. I think we called that Southern Gotham, if I recall. Yeah, South, South Gotham, I think. I was going to say my crowning achievement was my children, but now that I think about it, that column was, that column was much better than those three. So, yes. Okay. The right. column was second. The column is second in there. It's, we'll, 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 we'll make room for your children. I, remind me why we called that Southern Gotham, Southern, South Gotham. So I live in Atlanta, which is sort of, you know, I mean, it, no, no New Yorker would consider Atlanta New York South, but that's how we sort of think about it down here. Also a big Batman fan. So, I mean, I think that was how we arrived at it. It sounded, it sounded fierce or something to me at the time. I don't know. Look, mm -hmm. Looking back, it seems a little silly, but I think that was my reasoning at the time. No, I think it was attention-getting and uh, unusual, which was great. Uh, we were happy to have it. And, you know, you go back and look at those columns now on wealthmanagement.com. You can still find them. They're very good. They're very good. You know, so we, we appreciated that. Tell me a little bit about, you want to just start off maybe by telling us a little bit about some sense for advisors who don't know you, where you sit at Orion Advisor Services, what your perch is there, what you oversee, what you do, and, and you know, let us know a little bit about the universe there at Orion and from your perspective. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question. There's not many chief behavioral officers in the industry, so it's a it's a reasonable question. I'm really in charge of a couple of things. We call it the the three T's. It's uh, training, tools, and technology. So we have a practice management arm which heavily uh, skews towards all things behavioral finance, and so I do the the preponderance of the content creation there and the the sort of advisor education arm of, of Orion practice management. In terms of tools, we're always developing new tools for, for clients to, to better understand their clients. A good one to talk about here is the, the Money 20, a new assessment we're coming out with that'll give folks uh, deeper insights into how individuals think about money and their money stories and, and how those money stories may be the same or different than, than other family members or, or a spouse or a partner. Uh, and then we're trying to bake behavioral finance into sort of the very fiber of the technology that advisors use every day. I'm a big believer in just-in-time education. I'm also, uh, you know, I've also spent much of my life writing books and, and speaking at, at conferences and while those things have merit and there's some foundational importance to those things, I'm also realistic about how short-lived some of the gains from sort of simple education can be. And I feel like behavioral finance will really fulfill the measure of its creation when it's on every advisor's desktop and in everything an advisor does. 
And so that's sort of the third and, and for me, the most exciting part of my job is trying to be thoughtful about behaviorally informed approaches to planning and investing and baking that into to the very advisor desktop. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about how you make that leap from the behavioral finance and what we know from that discipline and leap over into practical application on the desktop. Because I don't think it's so easy, right? I mean, behavioral finance, that's, that's come very frequent use over the past few years. And I think it appeals, right? Because it seems to offer the key, right? The key to understanding why we think the way we do, why we're bad when it comes to money, how to be good when it comes to money, how we can fix ourselves. Is that an accurate way to think about behavioral finance or is that too simple? Well, I think behavioral finance, sort of my, my colloquial definition of, of behavioral finance is just, you know, finance that accounts for the messiness of, of humankind. And so I think there's a couple of reasons it's had big appeal. I think one is that it's just sort of quirky, weird stories about human nature. And I think everyone sort of revels and delights in, in sort of studying how, how screwed up we all are and how prone to bias and how fallible we all are. Unfortunately, I think we, we often read books like mine with an eye to thinking about other people instead of thinking about our own mm -hmm. behavior, but that's, you know, that's a different conversation. So I think that's a part of the popularity. I think uh, another piece of the popularity is, I mean, behavioral finance is, is in a very real sense, one of the last sort of enduring value propositions. You know, we've seen all parts of the advisor's ecosystem get eroded. There's been uh, fee compression among product for in product for a very, very long time, and it's been quite dramatic. I think it's been less dramatic on the advice side, but but irrational behavior is forever, right? I mean, we're going to get to the point where product fees are just going to come down, 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 and that won't be a, a, a real way to differentiate yourself uh, or provide value, I think, in, in the future. But, but human irrationality is a, a growth industry from, from now until forever. And so I think it's, it's a place where advisors correctly see that they can add value today, tomorrow, and forever. And so I think that's a big piece of the appeal. And uh, yeah, it's, it's to me that definitely the most exciting part of the business and it, and it always keeps you on your toes because, you know, humans are of course messy and not mechanistic and, and we can know a lot about people, but the people will still throw us curveballs. So that, that keeps it exciting. Well, this notion of behavioral or the messiness of people's behavior when it comes to finance and everything else is forever true. I think even some of the, the godfathers here of uh, behavioral economics say they themselves are not immune to the same kind of biases and, and you know, that they recognize in, in everyone else. How then do you take something that would be prescriptive for individuals? Let's just take something as simple as don't sell your stocks when the market implodes. Uh, and translate that over into an applicable tool that financial advisors can use with their clients day in day out beyond just telling them, hey, here's, here's a way that advisor, here's a way the clients think, here's what they're prone to do, uh, don't let them do it. How do you, how do you, you know, create tools, practical tools out of this discipline? Yeah, I'll give, I'll give two uh, concrete examples. And, and I think it speaks to the need to be thoughtful uh, about creating behaviorally informed technology 
And I think it also speaks to the fact that sometimes very subtle tweaks uh, in the way that we present or, or sort of frame information can have very profound impacts. So Betterment, right, the robo-advisor who had, you know, pivoted years ago and has become friendlier to the advisor community, they have a behavioral finance expert on staff, Dan Egan, who's a wonderfully thoughtful, smart guy. And they have a, a great thing where, you know, when you're about to make a sell decision, you know, when you're about to sell some stock, it will just say, hey, um, here are sort of the tax implications of what you're about to do. Are you sure you want to do this? And that very simple nudge, which is, again, just a, a just-in-time educational component, dramatically uh, impacts people's decisions for the better. People hold, hold on longer. They're more likely to stay the course when they just have to pause for a moment and think, huh, there could be some tax implications for the thing that I'm about to do. This isn't a consequenceless decision. Let me think through this. Let me just take a beat. And that very simple act of, of sort of that, that nudge, that frame, brings about some, some longer termism, which is what we're all after. A second example of this would be something we're doing at Orion right now, which we call Protect Live Dream. And this is our goals-based mental accounting solution for, for our investment accounts. And effectively what we do is we name the account for the psychological purpose it's trying to fulfill. You know, whether it's aspirational, whether it's serving a protect function. And this is an incredibly simple process, David. But what we found in, in the real world is that people are twice as likely uh, to contribute to an account if it's named uh, with respect to something that they value and that they're sometimes as much as 10 times less likely to go to cash or to panic uh, when they have a dedicated bucket that is earmarked for safety with the express purpose of, of giving them this peace of mind to see them through uh, an 18 month or a two year say bear, bear market. So again, both of these solutions are incredibly easy, whether it's giving so someone information at the point of decision or just being thoughtful about the framing and mental accounting of, of a series of accounts, and, and yet both of them have profound impacts. Uh, you know, I think about the Netflix, you know, the Netflix button that that sort of auto auto sends you on to the next show, you know, sort of the little countdown. Mm -hmm. They didn't always have that. And once they instituted that, they had a 70% uptick in, in viewership. And technology is such that you can make very simple tweaks that have very profound behavioral implications. And I think the best fintech firms are going to continue to be thoughtful uh, about how seemingly small innovations can drive really impactful uh, investor, investor decision making. You've seen these nudges be used for evil as well, right? I'm thinking of the, the, the Robinhood platforms, which spring confetti on you every time you buy a meme stock or whatever. I guess I'm, I'm asking, how are we sure that the way these tools are used are, are used? Well, I think, I think one thing, you know, to your point, there's, there's no such thing as, there's no such thing as being Switzerland when it comes to, to behavior and technology. I think a lot of us tend to think of, of technology as being so pervasive, so ubiquitous, it touches every part of our lives that I think sometimes we just take it for granted and we assume, you know, we are who we are and we're going to do what we're going to do and, and tech's just sort of there. It's just sort of the water that we're swimming in. But as you point out, uh, the way that different apps and different uh, technology applications 
sort of gamify uh, these experiences has a profound impact on, on how we behave. And we know, you know, one of my biggest learnings as a student of human behavior is that environment is more predictive of behavior than something like willpower. So you can come into, you know, a life of, of trying to manage your money and you can do that with the best intentions, but if it's framed poorly and if you're incentivized to do the wrong things, you're very likely to do the wrong things. So I think we need to be careful who we partner with and make sure that the organizations with whom we partner and with whom we entrust our data and our money have our best interests at, at heart. There, there are people in the fintech ecosystem who make money by sort of catalyzing bad investor behavior. And there are different members of the fintech world that make money when investors make money and when people make prudent decisions. And so I think we have to be thoughtful about whose side we're on and who we're going to choose to do business with, because there's no such thing as, as a neutral application. I, I'm kind of interested in this. I know you guys just rolled out this protective dream tool, and you've given some good examples of, of how that works on the platform. But this notion of dynamic financial planning, not a static individual who sets these goals, lives these dreams, uh, and sets off on the journey. Things change, right? And I'm, I'm assuming risk tolerance changes, proclivity for risk changes, dreams change, attitudes change. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe there is some sort of hardwired from birth baked in personality type when it comes to money. I don't know. How does the tool accommodate that kind of dynamic, right? I mean, I know for myself, right? I don't always know what I want. I don't know what the, what, what the, the, the right dream is. I don't know. You know I'm not always so self-aware that I, I can tell you exactly what buckets should belong and which categories for what outcomes. Someone asked me, how much do you want to say for retirement? And I say as much as possible. How do you, how do you, how do you change the, the, how do you address the changing dynamic of an individual's life as they go through this financial plan? It's a, it's a great question. So on the, on the risk tolerance front, we have a solution there called the 3D RTQ. And, and what we do is we actually measure three dimensions of an individual's risk-taking behavior. So we measure their risk tolerance, which we, we use this term kind of sloppily in the industry as sort of a catch-all. Uh, but from an academic perspective, a risk tolerance is relatively static. And it's, person, it's, a, it's a person's long-term attitudes about uh, a person's long-term willingness to make risk-reward trade-offs. Then we look at their risk capacity, which is their ability to take risk, which is going to have things like the size of their goals, their age, their level of wealth, and, and how much wealth they've accumulated, those sorts of things. And then we measure, most importantly to, to me, we measure their risk composure, uh, which is the likelihood that an emotional sort of uh, an emotional episode will dislocate those long-term attitudes about risk and reward trade-offs. So that's, that's the behavioral piece, and that's not something that everyone's doing. So that is important information to know. You need, we need to know uh, about someone's level of emotional lability. We need to be able to, to speak to that. We need to be able to warn them about that uh, and, and then help understand which of our clients need help at a period of market volatility. So on the risk front, I think it's incredibly important uh, that we need to measure all facets of risk, which would include sort of longer term, more stable pieces like, like tolerance and capacity, as well as the more behavioral, emotional piece. On the Protect Live Dream, I'm going to tell you about something we're working on right now that's not rolled out yet. 
and maybe it'll <laughs> maybe it'll light a fire under me and others to get it cranked out. But one of the things that we believe in is that values are more enduring than goals. If you ask the, the average person what their financial goals are, they're going to give an answer much like the one that you gave and, and honestly, like the one I would give. If someone said, you know, what are your financial goals? I'd be like, you know, I don't know. Like, don't run out of money, have more than I do today. People aren't that connected to their goals. A lot of time it's just a round number, you know, a million dollars, five million dollars, something that kind of sounds good that's not really tied to reality. Uh, so what we're working on is, is creating a universe of values that then maps to goals. Uh, I think that people have a much deeper and better understanding of their personal values. They have better access to those values. And then those values are more enduring. And then those values can map to a series of changing goals, right? I mean, maybe you have a value for adventure. That's likely to endure. Maybe during one period of time, it means a trip to, to Thailand. Maybe in a, during another period of time, it means going back to school. I don't know. It could, could mean different mm -hmm. things. Uh, but that value endures. And so I think we uh, need to do a better job of understanding our clients' enduring values and then mapping their less enduring, changing goals onto those values. Is that – that sounds right to me. Uh, does that tie into this notion of money personalities? I, I know there's some work out there about the way people relate to money being kind of hardwired into their brains from early on in their lives. Does that ring a bell? Does that come into play here at all? Well, when you look at when you look at personality traits, there's a great there's a great science around personality. It's some of the uh, psychology. Let's let's be honest. Psychology is a place where the science is sometimes a little imperfect and, and changing. But the 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 research around personality psychology is uh, verified by multiple streams of research and uh, really quite good. And what we see in the personality psychology piece is different traits are more enduring than others. So a trait like introversion or extroversion is, is fairly enduring. People tend to get more introverted with age, but in general, you tend, you tend to sort of uh, live in the same part of that continuum where you were born. Others are more changing. Yeah, it's sort of a trait by trait thing, but the good news is there's a really robust uh, science around psychology. There's five sort of primary psychological personality traits that are, and they're, they're, they're fairly enduring some more than others, but I think, I think it's high time that we started baking that into the planning process and understanding people's personalities. And that, that could give us information from how to communicate with those people to how best to allocate their assets. I think there's a, a wealth of information in personality research that, that hasn't been effectively tapped yet. And is this the Money 20 initiative you have rolling out? Yeah, so the Money 20 uh, actually has primarily to do, <laughs> that, was, that was developed to help couples have better conversations around money. So the Money 20 was, we, we surveyed hundreds of folks in, in America and Canada, and effectively, to, to, to put it crassly, we, we asked them basically, what do people fight about when they fight about money? You know, what, what do couples disagree upon? Uh, when they did disagree about money. And we found things like the level of importance. It was very important to some folks, not very important to others. How you communicate about it, whether money was an individual or a collective good. 
you know, a lot of folks, there were some cultural, cultural differences there too. Some folks think that money is, if, if I earned it, this is my, other folks think this is my money. So I'm going to use it to bless the lives of grandma, grandpa, aunt, and, you know, sister and the community. The biggest point of, of contention, which I thought was fascinating, was around whether money was best used to enjoy today or to secure tomorrow. And that was the biggest point of disagreement. There's a camp that thinks that money should be used to kind of live it up. There's a camp that says money should be sort of squirreled away for a rainy day. And I think if you're listening to this, you can probably find which camp you're in, but you probably also realize that they're both right. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's what we tried to do with the money 20 was across all of these dimensions say, look, both sides of this continuum have, have a point. It's about balance. It's about coming together as a couple, as a family and understanding each other's preferences, understanding that where there are differences, that they shouldn't be weaponized or that those differences don't exist because one person's right and another person's wrong. Carl Jung has this great, great quote, mess it up, but it effectively says, you know, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Mm. And I, I feel like a lot of people move through the unaware of their money preferences and their money story. And it's only after illuminating that and kind of bringing it to the surface uh, that you can have a conversation about it and, and how it coincides with or differs from the money story of someone you, you love. Right. And, and not pathologizing one or the other, right? Or, or any right. of the, the stories. That's a totally different conversation that financial advisors can have with their clients that up to this point, very, very few do, correct? Yeah, well, I'm the son of a financial advisor and my, my dad views, he's still, he's still working. So my dad views his job as sort of a calling and as a helping profession. You know, my decision to go into psychology, I think was motivated by the fact that I, in part, by the fact that I saw my dad as someone who worked in a helping profession, even though, you know, not everyone would, would sort of point to financial advice giving as such. And I think that in a world where the, the APA, the American Psychological Association, just came out with their yearly stress in America survey, and for the whatever, the jillionth year in the row, row, money is the number one stressor in the lives of Americans. It's one of the primary causes of, of marital dissatisfaction. It's one of the primary causes of divorce. It's the number one stressor in the lives of Americans, even more so with inflation um, being what it is today. I think it was like 87% of Americans were, were stressed about money right now. And financial advisors are in a real respect in the front lines of this, of this battle with, with stress against money. And if we can arm, if we can arm advisors with, with tools that help them help their clients have better conversations, be more thoughtful, be more prepared, be more conversant in the money, the, the language of money, that, that lifts people's lives and improves lives in, in a meaningful way. Sure. And you're right. I mean, it's likely that financial advisors have, in a way, been having these conversations with their clients forever, just not necessarily in a formalized top of the report type of context, right? Absolutely, uh, yeah. So tell me about that, though. You grew up the son of a financial advisor. You never wanted to go into financial advice yourself. What I drew did. you to academics? 
I did. I did actually. So I went okay. to my, my freshman, my freshman year of college, I, I went to school with an eye to, to, to doing what my dad did. And after my freshman year of college, I went on a mission. I went on a two year mission for my church to um, Manila, Philippines. And I, you know, learned Filipino and I learned, I lived in Southeast Asia for two years and coming back from that experience, you know, you, you have a wildly different perspective. You know, I mean, I grew up middle-class kid in the deep South of, of Southeastern U.S. and you live in Southeast Asia for a couple of years and you come back with a different perspective and I had different priorities. And I said, look, I want to do something that, that helps people. And so I went into psychology at, at that point. And about midway through my PhD in psychology, I was just burning out. I was seeing, seeing clients at this point, seeing patients. And I just, the, the, the heaviness of dealing with people who are engaged in criminal activity in some cases, dealing with people who are acutely suicidal. I loved the work. I cared so much for my clients, but it was just a very heavy thing for me. And it was something I was taking home in a big way. And I just had, I mean, candidly, I had poor boundaries. I had empathy fatigue. I was burnt up by my, by my work. And so I came to my dad and I said, look, I, I love psychology. I love thinking about why people do the things that they do, but I don't think I can do it in a medical setting. And he said, well, you know, there's a, there's a ton of psychology in, in my world. And I mean, I was what, 25 at the time. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> I, just, mm. I had, had sort of no, no idea that there was so much psychology in, in the world of financial advice. But, you know, my dad did not know the phrase behavioral finance or behavioral economics at the time, but he sort of pointed me in a direction where I could discover it for myself and, and sort of chart that path for myself. Interesting. What, and what was the first step on that path? Was it uh finding the Tversky book or, I mean, uh, yeah. how did you? <laughs> yeah, reading reading Dan Ariely and Kahneman and Tversky mm -hmm. and Thaler and all of those sort of bright lights of, of behavioral finance and behavioral economics. It was working at a, in a bank. I, my, my first job postgraduate school, my first, my first job postgraduate school was as a consultant to a, a large bank here in the Southeast doing um, pre-employment assessments uh, of executives. So I would give IQ tests and personality assessments to financial executives pre-hire. And that was fascinating work and work that I really believe in. And in the bank, I got sort of introduced into the, the workings of behavioral finance and behavioral economics in earnest. And then started speaking and writing books and the rest is history. But yeah, that was my first, you know, very much very much self-taught in the ways of in the ways of money and just 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 read a lot in those early days and sort of uh, baptism by fire but you made a decision to go into the private sector as opposed to remaining in academia yeah I had no I had no no taste for academia okay <laughs> I, uh, that was never I always wanted to make my my love has always been as, as sort of a, an intermediary between the ivory tower and folks like my dad. I grew up in North Alabama and, and as I was reading, you know, all of these, all of these works that we talked about, I was like, look, nobody is taking this Nobel prize winning research and, and sort of laying it down in practical terms where everyday advisors can use this for their own benefit. 
And so I've never had a desire to work in academia, but, but have a real desire to take the insights of people much smarter than me and make them work for, for people on the front lines of serving clients. And so what did you do? Did you open up a, a consultancy? Did you start to speak in conferences and get your name out there a little bit and, and then eventually uh, joined Brinker Capital? Yeah, so I, I worked for a couple of years at this uh, consulting firm, the, the banking consulting firm here in Atlanta. After that, I, I struck out on my own for almost 10 years doing a combination of speaking, writing and consulting and at some that's, point, that's a risky thing to do. That's a risky. Yeah, thing. it was at the, it was in 2009 too. That's when I <laughs> did it. Huh. So I was whatever 29 years old, and it was a recession. And I yeah. thought it would be a great idea to go out on my own, but it worked out okay. Brinker Brinker Capital was my biggest client for about seven of those ten years. And uh, at some point along that journey, they. They decided they believed in, in this work enough to make it a full-time position. So I signed on with Brinker. And after about a year and a half at Brinker, we were acquired by Orion. And that's been, that's been fantastic because it gave me uh, a sort of a great tech platform to, to work with and, and really apply these ideas at scale. And yeah, exactly. At scale, a number of financial advisors, uh, you know, what is the number of financial advisors that work in some way on the Orion platforms? Uh, many, uh, many thousands. Yeah, many thousands. Uh, so it's a it's a great perch there to reach a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Uh, so I was going to wrap this up by uh, just asking you for some recommendations. I, I know you're a big reader. Uh, any books that you uh, are reading right now that uh, you want to recommend to us? What are you reading right now? So I, oh goodness, what is the book? Luke Burgess' book about memetics. I'm spacing uh, the, uh, the name of it, but the Luke Burgess book yeah. about mimetic about mimetic desire was fascinating. I mean, it's all about sort of social proof and, and and how people how people desire things simply because other people desire them. Uh, big implications for for hurting and and behavioral finance, of of course. The best the best behavioral finance book that I think folks haven't heard much of is The Hour Between Dog and Wolf by Coates. Coates was like a floor trader who became a doctor of, of neuroscience and did really interesting research into sort of the physiological aspects of, of sort of how, how human physiology impacts investment decision making. And then of course, my own books, I would be remiss if I if I if I knew of a better book, I would have written. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, and we'll put all those in the in the notes here for the show. So if uh, people are interested, they can link to those. We'll definitely link to those. And then I got to ask you one more quick question. The uh, you know, I know every time I talk to you on Zoom, I see the guitars in the background. How long have you been playing? What's your relationship to the guitar? So I've played since I was 16, which would give you the idea that I'm very good, which would be incorrect. So I've played. I was in a punk band in high school couple of punk bands and society's hemorrhoid was the name of my band <laughs> and we misspelled we spelled hemorrhoid phonetically because we thought that was like more very, more punk. Punk, very more punk. punk rock yeah so society's hemorrhoid was the name of my my high school band i just found my my screen printed t-shirt the other day digging through some digging through some clothes and then honestly i just didn't play a ton in college and grad school just busy and then I, during during COVID, I picked it up in a really big way. I mean, it was just I think everyone sort of rediscovered their at home hobbies. So I've been, 
I've been pretty religious about practicing for the past two two years plus, but it brings me a lot of a lot of happiness. It's sort of meditative. I I, I like to cook and I like to play guitar because it just kind of transports me and puts you in that flow state. You sort of forget about everything else. Yeah, fantastic. Any music that you listen to that is inspiring you playing? Right now, I'm listening to the Smile, the Radiohead side project. Um, Radiohead's my favorite band of all time talking about radiohead is how i met my wife so wow. <laughs> radiohead is uh radiohead is my my favorite band by by quite a quite a wide margin and they have a little side project right now that's that's quite good called the smile okay we'll check that out. you like any of the tom york solo stuff is that uh, also i really don't i really don't like the tom york solo stuff i i saw tom york right before covid and i just i just don't love a, a song here and there but I'm yeah. much more of a fan of, of the Radiohead stuff. And this new band, The Smile, has has Johnny Greenwood in it, who is, I think, probably the, you know, the, the soul genius, of the band. Yeah, The genius yeah, band of the Radiohead music. We could talk about this forever, but I, I kind of agree. I, I find the York stuff to be a little bit soulless. And But anyway, neither here nor there. I, Daniel, this has been great. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. I Make sure people check out the show notes with your links and your books and where to find you. We will definitely have those there. Uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. No, it was fun. Thank you. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.